Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. All right, welcome to Mike Up with Cairo Up. Tim and Brandon uh, coming at you with a little bit different of a podcast. This is going to be an interesting one where there are six questions that we're going to review from our, our, our previous podcast and go into a little bit deeper of a dive. So I'm excited to give this one to you guys. Uh, we we uh, don't have the answers to the questions, so these will be coming off the cuff. However, uh, this is going to be one that you're going to want to listen to the whole thing. There's some uh, some sure to be some clinical pearls that come out of these questions and answers. Uh, if not by Tim, I'll try to add in a couple uh, to make it somewhat interesting. Just a reminder, if you haven't yet, hit the follow button and share this episode with a friend. It really does help us reach more people and uh, reach more great C's, uh, DCs just like yourself. And uh, let's kind of dive into this one, Tim. I, I think that this is uh, going to be a good podcast be kind of it goes with what we do at Cairo up instead of delivering content creating content creating functionality we really do think of ourselves as a co-op so when our subscribers uh, talk you know we we listen uh, our functionality is rooted in subscriber suggestions so there's so many times where we're on the road and so I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you created that. Thank you for doing this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, they, we just stole that from someone else. You know, when I think about the uh, MD initial reports, uh, that was a subscriber uh, question. You know, can we do initial and release reports? The functional disability surveys, we were using an outside service and, and this thing called paper in our office to uh, to get the oswestries and neck disability indices until our subscribers said, hey, why don't you just turn that into a survey since you can already text people stuff? Uh, so two of the great things that I think um, have really helped Kyrup grow as a, uh, a program. Yeah, absolutely. And some of those other things like the Facebook and Instagram auto posting that uh, now you don't have to post that yourself, that obviously the world is electronic, but even going into those platforms and having to, to put in the content and schedule it, all that can be done for you as well. A lot of our exercise videos, in fact, we're adding six pages of exercise videos this Thursday. Yeah. Uh, so those exercise videos, those aren't new ones that we've dreamed up for the most part. Occasionally, there'll be a research study, but it's really your request as a subscriber. You can request an exercise. If you have a favorite that's not in the program, by all means, use the form, hit us up. A lot of the infographics, we've added a bunch of those that are subscriber-facing uh, infogra or patient-facing inf infographics that were inspired by subscribers. And even our protocols that uh, Brandon and I certainly aren't experts on pelvic floor dysfunction or even low back pain in pregnancy. Um, so those ideas to say, let's create protocols for that large group of patients who do suffer from those types of things. We went to our subscribers and asked them, what's, what's the best way to manage this process? So this is going, this podcast, you know, today is going to be a little bit different of a flow than our past podcast, but I assure you it's going to, uh, it's going to get into some meat of, uh, in this case, six different clinical diagnoses. And I thought I'd just save them for one special episode. Uh, this is one of those kind of a, a give back to the subscribers. We always appreciate those uh, those pieces of feedback because they help us all grow as a profession. Uh, and in fact, if you're listening during the month of, uh, of June, this is Subscriber Appreciation Month. So I'm impressed you knew what month it is. <laughs> uh, that's month seven, right? Uh, you know, in all actuality, um, this is a little bit embarrassing. However, I moved around a lot as a kid. 
And for they some, they called that expulsion. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I never had to learn my months in order. So I got to eighth grade and I was in eighth grade and I'll never forget. I was finally, I got to Missouri, never went to the same school twice until eighth grade. And, um, my mom asked me about a month and I was like, mom, I, I don't know. I, I must've missed that section, uh, throughout middle school and elementary school. Um, but that's beyond the, the scope of this podcast. So you, you can't tell us if it's June or July, but Dude. what you can tell us is uh, about episode number one was episode on Maine syndrome and clunial neuropathy. And the question is, it seems like we're just splitting hairs with those diagnoses and wouldn't solving the joint restriction fix the problem? So that was question number one. How would you answer that question? I would say this like anything else. I think manipulation solves a lot of problems. And unfortunately, it gets us all a touch lazy, myself uh, included, is that uh, trial of care with manipulation is going to fix a lot of problems because as far as non-surgical, non-pharmacological care, manipulation is at the tip top of what we should be providing for musculoskeletal care. However, I will say with Meng syndrome, you know, this is sciatica of the uh, the TL junction. So if we have most of our disease in the spine, they happen at those transitional zones. This one being a hypermobile lumbar spine to a hypomobile uh, thoracic spine, is that dorsal ramus uh, pays the price for that. So first off, I would say that um, yes, manipulation is going to fix a lot of these problems, but only when it's due to a hypomobile segment. It's going to help get things moving. We still need to marry those two, the mobilizations, the stretches, uh, the ADL modifications that will um, help promote uh, mobility through those segments. However, what if that segment is hypermobile? You know, our unidimensional rotational athletes, our throwing athletes are going to create a lot of issues uh, to that segment that maybe aren't going to be fixed with manipulation. Yeah, one of the ways that I would address that, the hypo versus the hyper, is when we shear a segment, uh, you know, just having the patient lie on their stomach and apply a couple pounds of force through each of the segments. A segment that's uncomfortable tells us that we've instantly narrowed that diagnosis down to one of 200 possibilities. It just means there's something wrong with that segment. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily hypomobile, probably most of the time, but certainly in the case of uh, the lower lumbar spine or the thoracolumbar junction, those transitional areas, maybe it's hypermobile. The way that I can help differentiate that is by shearing the area, and if it's uncomfortable, then having the patient lift their legs off the table. If they attempt to lift their legs off the table, they're going to engage the deep spinal stabilizers, and then I'll shear that segment again. If the pain is less intense, it tells me that adding stability to that part of the system will probably pay a dividend. The other thing that we can have the patient do is just flex forward, have them lean forward at the waist as far as they can and come back up. We're looking for, is there any discomfort? Do they have a hitch in their get along? At least that's one of our Midwestern terms. And if that's the case, then what we're going to have them do is abdominally brace. And remember, abdominal bracing is not sucking your belly in, it's pushing it out. So have the patient put their hands just above their hips on the fleshy part of their waist, push in with their hands, and then use their abdomen to push back out. When the patient's able to do that to brace, have them flex forward again and come back up. If they're bracing and the pain goes away, that tells us again, adding stability is the way to go. And the differentiation of that is crucial because that's going to define, do we give them stability exercises or do we manipulate the area? And if we don't manipulate that segment, certainly there are probably other segments in the area, or other segments that may need some manipulation, but maybe not that one. Let's add some stability. 
The other thing we want to remember is that there's a difference between the origin of that pain at the thoracolumbar junction and the distal symptoms. The cluneal nerve can absolutely become entrapped as it comes out over the top of the iliac crest. So making sure we're doing our nerve releases and the myofascial release, both distally as well as addressing the, so- the central source of that. You know, one thing that I've learned, this probably is more of an opinion as compared to a fact, but when I do a PA shear test on someone for a lumbar or thoracic problem, and I push down, determine that site is, is hypermobile, um, and, I, and I do the same stability test that, that you do, McGill was always good about showing that test in his seminars, um, those are patients that often don't respond well to traction. That I'll get if they're really acute when you do a PA shear test and you put them on a traction machine. Normally, it lights them up a little bit. Uh, I don't know why I just thought about that, but that's something that I've had to learn the hard way with patients. Is I'll get them on a traction machine, then <laughs> you have a tough time getting them off the traction machine. Uh, but to t- talk, you know, more about this subject, the ADL modification I think is one of the lost arts uh, with all diagnoses, but definitely this one. This is one that especially when you have a a peripheral source of pain because their pain is going to be on their flank, possibly radiating down to their buttock on that side. They're thinking the problem's there, yet you're treating somewhere else. And so it does become a touch confusing to that patient. So I will say that my hypermobile patients, those are patients, my baseball players, my they're, they're rotating too much, they're extending, they're flexing, they're moving too much, I should say that. And young. Yeah, usually young, absolutely. Those are the patients you really need to teach that uh, the spine is not regionally interdependent, uh, that we need to be mobilizing other parts. You know, So if they're not getting enough mobility through their hip, we need to, they're going to find it through their thoracolumbar junction. And the same goes for those hypomobile segments, uh, those patients that are just sitting for eight hours a day with poor posture and loading that thoracolumbar junction uh, poorly and, and creating some kind of degeneration of that spot. So uh, kind of keeping in mind uh, and mirroring the treatment also to what you're going to be giving the patient at home. Uh, so question two. Question two was on cubital tunnel syndrome from podcast two. Uh, Tim, I'll let you read that question off. I have a patient with cubital tunnel syndrome, and I'm following what you said, and they're not getting better. Uh, what would you check for next? Well, clearly you've made a mistake then if they're not getting better from what we had said. You know, one of the things that I do hear about on the road is that, well, you said this, this, and this. And I want to make that clear is that whenever we talk, I, I give my opinion a lot. Um, however, when you do dive into Cairo up, it's not Tim and I's opinion. In fact, there are some things that were like, well, I, I didn't know that, or that's something maybe a little counterintuitive to what I learned. However, However, what we try to do is to give you, in Cairo Up, the evidence-based information. The podcast is maybe a little more evidence-informed or experiential. Um, however, um, Cairo Up is not what Tim and Brandon say to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For liability purposes, my lawyer told me to say that. Yeah, good. We, we should always add those disclaimers. Um, yeah, certainly. We have, if, if the diagnosis is correct, then generally something within that protocol is going to get the patient over the edge to where they're feeling better. So the biggest concern would be, would the diagnosis be correct in this case? We need to remember that any peripheral neuropathy is, is often a double crush syndrome that it's something that's not just an irritation of the cubital tunnel. There's probably some irritation somewhere else. There's irritation in the cervical spine. There's a thoracic outlet syndrome component. So we'll check those out. We'll make sure that we're doing a foraminal compression test or maximum foraminal compression. We're doing the upper uh, limb nerve tension tests in order to help get some um, assessment as to where could that nerve be entrapped. And then also the TOS test. Is there entrapment between the scalenes or costoclavicular or underneath the pec minor? 
and then looking for other possibilities that maybe this is systemic, especially if there's you know neuropathies in more than one location, patients with diabetes, thyroid disorders, and, and even pregnancy. Anything that changes the fluid in the body has the potential to cause increased compression in a small tunnel, like the cubital tunnel. So those patients with numbness and tingling into their fourth and fifth digit, look for those things as well as could this be something completely different? Could this be a patient who maybe has a medial epicondylopathy with a lot of inflammation in the area or even a, uh, a median nerve irritation as opposed to radial you know, or ulnar? When we look at the research, we always uh, run across this multimodal care that when you're treating anything, you need to do manipulation, manual therapy, and exercise. And it's tough to find papers to say that those aren't a good idea. However, we also have taken consideration multi-tissue care. And I just, just wrote that down. I'm pretty sure I've never heard that before, so I will patent that by the end of the week. Um, however, one of the things that I think is, is interesting that when you work with something like this, like cubital tunnel syndrome, that often as a chiro, what am I thinking? What muscles, what tissues, what movements to correct? Uh, and in this case, nerves to correct. But really with the protocol that you should be employing, or I, I'm not sure they should be, but, but can be employing, uh, that we do in Chiropa is we not only attack treating and moving the muscles, the nerves, the ligaments, the joints, what have you, but also the nerves. So really when you have a problem with uh, these kind of uh, areas that could be long-lasting, a lot of different tissues can be, uh, be causing the problem. And don't forget, tissues have different healing times. Muscles heal quickly, nerves take a little bit more time. So I will say this, that when you come to a neuropathy issue, like a cubital tunnel syndrome, I bet the subscriber probably has the diagnosis nailed. He or she's just not giving that tissue time to, enough time to heal, or more likely the patient's not giving the chiropractor enough time to, to work with them uh, because they don't understand how long it takes for that tissue to heal. But the second part I think is, is possibly more important, that in this kind of diagnosis, assuming you have the diagnosis nailed, uh, the creative part, the hardest part about this is to figure out the ADL, the movement, the habit, the hobby, the sport, the, the, the posture of the patient that's probably causing this. So in this case, elbows being bent past 90 degrees, that ulnar nerve gets tethered across that medial condyle. You know, think about, you know, uh, Sally using her phone for three hours before she goes to bed and looking and uh, you know, scrolling through Instagram. Uh, think about your uh, sleeper, uh, you know, let's say sleeping is really going and she's, uh, you know, sleeping with her elbows bent for long periods of time. Uh, or her runner, in fact, my wife was the, the same way. She's a, a long distance runner and she has her elbows bent uh, really tight when she runs runs and it could be causing a tethering. So it's not maybe necessarily that you're missing the diagnosis. Maybe maybe go digging a touch deeper as far as the ADL etiology. Yeah, one of those big things what we're both doing right now, having our elbows on the desk and our our ulnar nerve is being smashed up against a hard table. So as more people are transitioning out of active physical roles into passive physical roles at desks, this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem. So question number three was from episode three on lateral epicondylopathy, uh, keeping in mind that could be an itis, it could be an osis, but this question was actually on the itis part of it, meaning how do you separate uh, chemical from mechanical sources of pain? And more importantly, is there a role for anti-inflammatories when you have a patient with chemical pain? I would say yes. And I think that some people may have a philosophy, a belief, a mindset when it comes to chiropractic that we have to be non-surgical, non-pharmacological, and that's fine. I'm 100% on board with that. However, if you have a chemical problem, let's fix it with a chemical solution. Uh, it could be 
and NSAID. It could be a steroid injection. It could be PRP, which is natural. It could be a supplement. It could be ice. It could be just time. So when people come in to see us, they have a pain and they want that pain to go away. And for a lot of diagnoses, that's true with itis, we just need to calm that tissue down. Now, if someone has a tendinopathy, maybe it is a tendinosis, a, a pure tendon issue that just got inflamed, we need to calm it down and then build it back up. Um, however, that's a different discussion. For this question, is there a role for anti-inflammatories? I would say 100% yes. Let's get things to calm down first. Absolutely. And, and recognizing that the majority of patients who come see us have moved out of that chemical phase, that they're into more of a mechanical phase, that in, as opposed to having inflammation, now they have de-inflammation. They have a lack of blood supply to the area and that tendon is turning to beef jerky. So yeah, we can rest them. We can stop activity, which is absolutely appropriate, at least, uh, at least throttling activity to the point that they're not continuing to damage the area. But we need to recognize once the patient gets out of that phase, it's time to get going again and to gradually build that activity back up. There was a good article in uh, Physical Therapy and Sport that said immobilization reduces symptoms after lateral ankle sprain, but may worsen the range of motion of the ankle and delay return to play. So the things that we used to do, which was RICE, rest, ice, compression, elevation, have now switched to more of a meat uh, perspective that we want movement, we want exercise, we want therapy, we want to get range of motion back into that joint as quickly as possible. And that's true of not just a ankle sprain, it's true of most of the things we treat. When's the last time that you saw a whiplash collar, which used to be standard 30 years ago, now we recognize that patient's going to do much, much worse. When a patient comes out of a knee replacement surgery, they're immediately put into a passive mobilizer where their knee is getting bent and flexed and it used to be a brace. So as we, as we evolve and learn that it's it's all about restoring blood flow and movement to an area. That's where healing comes from. We can modify our treatments as well. So suppressing inflammation initially, sure. Long-term, probably a bad idea. Which takes us to question number four, anterior knee pain. So episode number four, we talked about anterior knee pain, the common causes of that, and how we might manage some of those conditions. And apparently we missed something because a subscriber wrote in and said, what exercise recommendations would you make to a runner with patellofemoral pain syndrome when it hurts to sit, stand, squat, and walk upstairs? And also, do you change everyone's gait if they have pain with running? Well, I think the most important thing to recognize with patellofemoral pain syndrome and really most knee disorders is that it's not happening at the knee. That's where the site of symptoms are. The origin of that problem is probably happening up chain or down chain in another part of the kinetic system. There's either going to be some hip abductor weakness or there's going to be some hyperpronation in the foot. I'll always start with the, the hips first. We want to work from the core and build our way out. And the same thing's true of building strength in patients. It's no use building a big cannon if it doesn't have a base that it's attached to that can support that. So building the core, building the proximal joints, and then moving out. So we'll start with the hips first. Yeah, and one thing that we always talk about in our seminars is there's two stop signs for exercise. If you have sharp pain, you got to stop. If or if you're busy, well, really busy. I have some busy patients. Can I give you my analogy? <laughs> I don't think it matters what I say. So I don't know if you've ever had this patient, but I've had these patients. Listeners at home, get your pens and papers yeah. out. Um, so I'll have a patient. They'll come back in after I'll give them some exercises. And I'll say, Tim, did you do your exercise? And Tim will say, invariably back to me, oh, my gosh, I've been so busy. These last three days, I have not had an extra second, and I could not get these exercises in. And I said, Tim, have you ever had diarrhea? 
And Tim will always chuckle and be like, uh, yeah. Tim, when you had diarrhea, did you find time to go to the bathroom? <laughs> and the patient will get him like, uh, yeah, I did. Well, you don't have diarrhea now, but you've back pain, you have knee pain. You need to be doing your exercises. Yeah, that's, you know, you bring up a great point. And um, we highlighted, based again on subscriber input, how to manage those types of patients that we asked, uh, what are the most frustrating patients in your offices? And there were, you know, we came up with six of them that were a common theme. And one of them was the underachiever, that patient who it doesn't matter what you do, they're just not going to do their homework and they're not going to help you help them. So check out the, uh, the most recent blogs we have uh, divided into two-part series. And we also have some videos coming your way uh, that our team put together to help, help uh, you address frustrating patients. But the reason I interjected um, was that these patients, when they have patellofemoral pain syndrome, any kind of knee flexion is going to bother them. So and definitely loaded. My favorite exercise is get them squatting, get them lunging, get them doing stuff, but they just can't do that. So when we want to attack the hips first, it is always great to have them weight-bearing. However, for these kind of patients, you're going to want to start off low, meaning sideline um, or, or, or prone or supine. I'm a big fan of clams and bridges. Not necessarily that you're going to have big bulging butt muscles after doing clams and bridges, even if you add bands to those. They're just not, they're just not enough weight, not enough load. Uh, but it'll get people using those tissues first. Then you can morph them into harder exercises like a, a posterior lunge or some kind of um, a deadlift exercise after. Yeah, moving out to the hip once you have the core stable because we, we know um, physiotherapy uh, theory and practice in 2022, just last year, said that patients who have anterior knee pain from patellofemoral pain syndrome have distinctly weaker activation of the hip abductors, and that means the gluteus medius. We remember that 70% of the force required to maintain frontal plane alignment when you squat and run and move comes from the gluteus medius. The other 30% comes from the TFL and the gluteus maximus. So when one muscle is not doing its job, other muscles do their job. We need to make sure that we're addressing those components by working out the trigger points, giving the patient stretches, but most importantly, getting the gluteus medius back on board so that it's doing its job. Well, I have buns of steel, so I don't have that issue. I thought it was brains. Oh. <laughs> um, the next part about this is that, um, you know, I think there's a mental component to this that uh, unfortunately, whenever we, whenever it's an older patient that uh, has been sitting around for a while and has knee pain, there's a big piece of this that they don't know how to even activate their glutes. I call it glute amnesia. I'm pretty sure I sure stole that from someone else. However, you can literally poke on their gluteus medius and they can't activate it. You'll see the same thing happen in the shoulder with the uh, lower middle traps. They can't even activate those muscles to bring their scapula back because they don't use them at all. So with your exercise, don't just prescribe exercises. Make sure you're explaining why you're doing those exercises. Because if you don't, then unfortunately, they're going to think they know more than you. In fact, that's one of the reasons patients don't come back. They don't understand why they have to. That's one of the reasons they'll do their exercises. They don't understand why they have to and the potential benefits. So when, it, when we get into uh, exercises for patellofemoral pain syndrome, we want to do difficult exercises. Um, and we want to make sure that we're able to raise the capacity of that tissue. Because the second part of the question that was asked is, do you change their gait? And that's a big piece because the way they move, the way they run is going to activate muscles in a different way. And when it comes to my runners, there's two different populations. The first is a veteran runner 
And unfortunately, their capacity to do work, their capacity of their glutes is diminishing with age. Um, and, and that's fine. However, their brain may not want to admit it, uh, but their glutes and their knees are not going to, uh, to to accommodate that. So teaching them, you know, teaching that runner how to improve their glute strength is going to improve over time. And as long as you're able to do that in a, a educational manner versus a um, uh, you know, an, an insult, hey, your glutes are getting weak, um, that, that veteran is going to be able to kind of keep up with their distance and mileage uh, without having to sacrifice, you know, their knees for that. Yeah, it's hard to change patterns in, in veteran runners. Those new runners who are getting into things, it's a little bit more easier. The person who's going couch to 5K, they're also the person who's going to be most likely to develop problems. So making sure that patient understands the 10% rule. Don't exceed more than 10% of what you're used to. If you're used to running a mile a week, you better not run five miles the next week. And also talking to them about stride length and heel strike. That a patient, if we can shorten their stride so they're running faster, I often tell my patients to imagine they're running on the sun, that if they had a cadence of 180, that would be ideal. That means that they're probably going to have to strike a little bit uh, more forefoot as opposed to a heel striker, which may be more efficient unless that patient has some some posterior chain problems like an Achilles tendon or a gastroxoleus issue. Generally, a little more shock absorption if we can get them onto a midfoot or forefoot strike. And also widen their stance, that if they're running on a line, uh, that's going to be an issue. It's going to cause stretching of the gluteus medius, and it's not as stable. And a lot of times, that goes hand in hand. A weak gluteus medius forces people to run on a line, and running on a line causes progressive weakening of the gluteus medius, like any self-perpetuating issue. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. ChiroUp helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code PODCAST15 for 15 percent off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. So question question number five, or I'm sorry, episode five, we didn't get any questions from. You not were a, sick for not, that one. Not a single one. Uh, so it was either really good or I guess maybe it was really bad. Uh, I always learned that if you can't impress people with intellect, you better baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> That's your guiding light. <laughs> really, everything you say is evidence-based except the stuff you make up. So I think you're better at the uh, at the latter. You know what, what I... That one, I was, it was on imaging. I remember that one. It was on imaging and friction radiculitis. And there's actually been several times on social media that I've seen that, um, that web, uh, that, well, the blog, the blog and also that, that uh, webinar uh, and podcast brought up. And it always has like a, um, a cloud around it. Whenever you talk about chiropractors and imaging, people get a little bit defensive and belief oriented. However, in the, the article, in fact, the blog I know says, we actually don't image enough. And that's the crazy part is chiropractors think that we image too much. I don't think that's the case. I think possibly historically it might have been for the wrong reasons. But when you look at it now, when you see a red flag or you see progressive neurologic deficit or people of a certain age or a diagnosis or the, uh, some of the Ottawa ankle rules are positive, we need to actually be imaging more. Um, so we're not um, anti-imaging. When you follow the clinical prediction rules, 
we should actually be uh, utilizing imaging or something that that article wasn't about it, but advanced imaging uh, more than we are. And another thing to remember, a lot of those clinical prediction rules were created by people who are not about to apply several pounds of force to a segment. So we may be held to a little different standard. And that doesn't give us a license to image everything that that comes into our office Uh, by any means. I got one of those. You have, Yeah. yeah. Uh, an image of everything? Yep. It's yeah. a card in my wallet. <laughs> that's that's really good. Uh, the other thing is that cloudiness that you felt. I think that's the episode that you were sucking some helium. So that could have been was part really? of the cloud. I'm not sure, but I uh, think it was around You almost there. killed me on that one. Yeah, that was a good moment. Um, issue of femoral impingement was the next question. So second to last question was on uh, issue of femoral impingement. I probably can't say that five times fast. Um, however, the question was this. Uh, I've got a patient with deep gluteal pain. I think it's IFI, if you issue a femoral impingement. Uh, the long stride walking test and IFI tests are positive, but they're not getting better with manipulation and stretching. What else should I try? Yeah, probably looking at the associated tissues. That We remember that ischiofemoral impingement means that the quadratus femoris muscle, that short, square little muscle that attaches the ischial tuberosity onto the femur, is getting pinched when the leg comes approximately. And when that gets pinched, it becomes irritated. The thing to remember is that uh, the the person who lives right next to that is the sciatic nerve traveling over the top of that quadratus femoris muscle. So when the muscle's inflamed, certainly the nerve can be irritated. One thing that I'll usually try to employ is some sciatic nerve flossing. Remember that anytime a nerve is inflamed, it has a tendency to potentially develop some lack of neurodynamics. It doesn't stretch and glide the way that it should. If any nerve gets pulled more than 16%, it's going to develop a traction ischemia. That means that if you're pulling the sciatic nerve, which should be about three feet long or so, but all of that pull is happening between the ischium and the lower back, that's going to create more than 16% stretch. That's going to be an issue. So sciatic nerve flossing, there are some great videos in Cairo Up. If you go to the uh, treatment techniques or exercises, you'll be able to see those. It's simple to have that patient perform those at home. It's something that can add to your care plan with much better outcomes. We'll also want to make sure, as we talked about before, that the hip abductors are working. That if the abductors are allowing uncontrolled adduction of the thigh, it's going to create pinching every time that they bend and squat and step. So making sure they have a strong gluteus medius. And then also looking at the accessory muscles. What's been overworked? Probably overworked the TFL, probably the gluteus maximus, and certainly the piriformis and hamstring are in there too. So working those muscles, getting the gluteus medius strong, and doing some sciatic nerve flossing. The sciatic nerve flossing is is tremendous, and looking at the actual nerve to desensitize it. Uh, Keep in, uh, in mind that the seated sciatic nerve floss is probably the easiest to perform, maybe not one for this condition, you know? So uh, you don't want to sit on it as you compress it and stretch it. Uh, it's not, not a great idea. So maybe the sideline want to be a, a touch better option. Not as easy to do a work, but also a little bit more beneficial for uh, that patient. And going along with that mindset, sitting on it. Uh, change the way you sit, not met you, your patient. Uh, change the way they sit. Uh, keeping in mind that surface area matters. If they're sitting on the edge of their seat and only have three inches of their butt on the seat, they're taking their entire body weight and putting it through that three inches. Uh, I noticed you've been working on surface area. That's good. <laughs> um, uh, well, my kids are in school now, so I have to relearn all those, um, those, uh, those mathematical questions. Uh, thank God for uh, YouTube. 
Uh, so sitting on it, uh, if you can get your, your bottom all the way back in the seat, uh, it'll put more surface area on the, um, uh, on, on the chair. Also take in consideration your car. Uh, so if your seat pan uh, can um, actually elevate upward, uh, it will help take some pressure off that area instead of having just your, your Ischium sitting on the, uh, the seat. Um, last question. So this was on episode six on thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, uh oh, this is my question. Uh, <laughs> obviously a question of something I talked about. Uh, I had a question concerning the exercise Dr. Steele talked about in neurogenic TOS section of your podcast. Why do you do the corner pec stretch if it's a unilateral problem? And, um, hmm, I guess I would, I would say, there's two reasons, and uh, both are probably rooted in laziness. Um, however, I think that it's just as efficient. That um, the first is TOS is a uh, could possibly be um, uh, the primary factor, but usually it's due to some kind of underlying etiology or functional disturbance. So if I have someone with upper cross syndrome, scapular dyskinesis, those are huge predisposing factors to TOS. So, and those are at least upper cross syndrome is a bilateral issue with the pecs and the biceps and everything are uh, a little bit overworked as compared to the muscles in back, like the scapular stabilizers are underworked. Um, and it can lead people into having TOS. So I use the corner pec stretch because it attacks the underlying etiology. That's probably the first reason. The second reason is I just like that exercise better. It's a little bit easier to perform than the unilateral pec stretch. So going into the corner, having both elbows anchored to the, the wall. Once again, if you haven't seen this exercise, uh, check uh, out Cairo up in the, uh, the uh, exercise section. It's just easier to explain and the patient's able to perform a little bit better. Uh, one thing that I'll hear from a patient, is, I just don't have any open corners in my house. Come on, you know, I. You don't live in a roundhouse, um, so find a corner. Uh, make this important. Uh, kind of going back to the uh, the other question that I asked them about their uh, their diarrhea. Uh, so these are the top questions that we that we got in the first several episodes of the podcast. Um, I would say this: uh, ask more questions, and it only helps spark interest uh, with with Tim and I when we create these podcasts. These podcasts are, like I said, the the merging of evidence-based information, which I find on Cairo Up, and our experience. So maybe you can call that evidence-informed, maybe not, uh, or maybe it's just a, a little bit of a rant. But I think that uh, the more questions you ask, uh, the more we can kind of dive into a podcast that you want to hear. Now, um, I was out at, uh, where was I? I was in South Carolina this last weekend. Uh, Tim, you were down in Orlando. And I got this question twice. It has nothing to do with the current podcast. but uh, had Why did we get you instead of the good guy? <laughs> uh, there, there were questions about that. Um, that had to do with the survey that we asked out of Kairop and why it's important. And the, uh, the, the, the answer I kept on hearing from people was, well, you get Google reviews. So if you do a condition report from Kairop and you, give, you deliver patient education with the, the exercise, the ADL information, the, uh, the lay description of what's going on with that patient, that's, that's important. We're not going to cover that. However, you send a survey 30 days later. That survey is what I want to talk about now. You know, how many times you see the provider? What percent better are you? How satisfied are you with the care? And on a zero to 10 scale, how likely are you to refer this practitioner to a friend? So that's what I'm talking about now because those provider statistics 
are super important. And it's, uh, it's very important this time of year for anyone who has kids because this time of year you get your report card for your kid. And when you get that report card and little Johnny has a C in math, do you say, okay, uh, keep on doing what you're doing, Johnny? Or do you say, hey, Johnny, we probably need to work on math over the summer because it appears you're not grasping that information as much. That's, of course, the answer, well, at least that I give after I ground him and take away his PlayStation. Um, however, uh, Johnny and, uh, and Tim and I need to dive into that section in Kairop also for our profession. Go into the admin section, go into provider statistics, and look at your statistics. So I'm going to give you uh, my and Dr. B statistics. And when it comes to that 30-day survey, uh, my patients were 78.8% better after 30 days, Dr. B's patients were 77.4. Looks like I won that category. Now, if that's not enough, likely to refer. Mine are 96.9% likely to refer me to a friend. Yours are only 96.8%. So once again, lagging. I'm over two. However, and this one this one hurts a little bit. My MPS score was 91 yours was 91.7 and as it turns out well, could you i didn't could you go through that one more time <laughs> as it turns out the most important metric which is the mps score he beat me on yeah i think really it's it's more of a reflection of um, some simple stuff like intellect and charisma and charm and humility uh, that's probably why it's more important, but uh, <laughs> which which also reminds me of you know anytime I go away and I'm out of town, I come back in, and uh, my patient will come back and say, "Oh, I, I saw Doctor Steele," and I say, "Yeah, how'd that go?" And they said, uh, "Well, he he told me that um, he was going to do a very similar assessment, and he said he's going to do a very similar treatment." and prescribe very similar exercises. He said, there's just one tiny difference between us that he's a lot better. And, and it, you know, it's always, it's always interesting coming back from a, from a short trip. The patient will be like, hey, how was Palau? And the next one will be like, oh, how how did you enjoy Madagascar? I'm like, I was in Tulsa. So there's always something to be, uh, to be had once I return. But the NPS score um, is not necessarily a reflection, reflection of better, but it is an indicator of how likely your business is to be successful in the future. In fact, some sources say it's the number one predictor of your future success. Then an NPS is based on the question, how likely are you to refer to us in the future? If a patient is able to rate you as a 9 or 10, they're considered a promoter. If they're 0 through 6, they're considered a detractor. And to develop your NPS score, you take the percent of promoters minus the percent of detractors, which could be anywhere from negative 100 to positive 100. If you can get above zero, you're doing good. If you can get above 50, that's excellent. If you get above 80, that's world class. One of the things that you and I as chiropractors should be very proud of is that our average NPS score for all chiro providers, the 2,500 in the network in 16 countries, is 89.8. That's near perfect. That's that's 10 points above world class, which is absolutely unbelievable. You should be very proud of yourself because that is a reflection of how we're going to perform as a profession in the years that follow. Not to mention our patients have a 96.7 likelihood to refer on average from all 2,500 providers. So congratulations, doing something right. And I'm really proud to be part of that network. 
And that network is something that's constantly changing. We're always trying to, to grow new content. As far as the new things, as we wrap up today, uh, we have produced some micro-webinars uh, for subscribers to talk about different aspects of the program that maybe you uh, could use more efficiently or to leverage uh, more referrals, better patient engagements, things to build your business. We also have uh, a number of blogs. We talked about the Frustrating Patients blog. Don't forget each of those has a resource tied to it. One of them, we developed a missed appointment policy, and the missed appointment policy will help eliminate a lot of headaches. We've got a bunch of new infographics. We did uh, two, a provider and a patient-facing infographic on modic changes, so some illustrations to explain when a patient says, oh, I have a modic type 2 change. What's that mean? This can help you out. Um, and we also uh, have the ability now to review your practice from any platform. So if you don't want to just send patients to Google, maybe you'd prefer Yelp or HealthGrades or whatever review platform you'd prefer, you can put that into your link so that if a patient rates you as a 9 or a 10 on their likelihood to refer, you send them to your preferred platform. And even mixing it up is a good idea so that you have some in Google, some in Yelp. In the States, certainly Google is number one. We also have uh, six pages of new tests and exercises that are going into Cairo up. They're being recorded this week, and they're all ready to roll. So that'll be a lot of new content. And we've added a sixth uh, person to our coding team. It's almost like we're gearing up for something really big in the next few months. And we're proud to be part of that mission. Uh, Cairo Up is not an exercise program. Cairo Up is not something that's just a best practice resource. It's a mission. And that mission is to make our profession the undeniable best choice for patients and payers alike. We're proud to be on that mission with you. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure that you follow the Cairo Up uh, Miked Up podcast wherever you're listening. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear your biggest takeaway from this episode. We'd love to hear your questions from future episodes. And most importantly, we are very proud to be part of your network. Thank you for allowing us to participate in the care of your patients. We'll look forward to connecting next time, and I hope all is well between now and then. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit ChiroUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.